Welcome back to Chunky Glasses, the podcast. This is episode number 107. This is also part two of our uh, Unsung Drummers podcast. Uh, if you tuned in for the last one that we put out on Tuesday, uh, invited Adam, uh, Ben Tufts, and uh, Mike Smirnoff down to the basement, uh, all drummers, to talk about uh, unsung drummers, talk about drummers that maybe don't necessarily uh, get their due. You've heard their work before, for sure, but maybe you don't know who they are, so this is... Uh, or anything about him. So this is sort of our our chance to talk a little bit more about him and expose you a little bit more to their music and, and what made them great. Um, if you didn't listen to the last podcast, don't worry. You won't be lost. Uh, we'd like it if you listened to that podcast. But, you know, this one just picks up right at the end of that one. Uh, we're right in the, into Mike's next pick of uh, Gil Fuller. Uh, so if all you got time for is is this one in your life this week, uh, we understand that, and uh, I hope you enjoy this. Uh, but for the full-on Unsung Drummer experience, uh, we're going to go ahead and suggest both uh, put in your ears. So uh, rather than, than sort of pitch that anymore or, or ramble on any further, uh, because this is, like we said, a, a whole big three-hour experience, uh, we're just going to jump right to it. So here you go. This is episode 107 of Chunky Lives of the Podcast. Part two of our Unsung Drummers series uh, with Adam Dawson, Ben Tufts, and Mike Smith. It happens here, and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man Nearly a two-word review just a shit sandwich. That right there, he is a logical power. Back to you, Mike. What you got? All right. Let's see. Um, this guy, uh, I think he'll be known to most drummers, but I think most non-drummers will have never heard of him. His name's Earl Palmer. Yes. And uh, he's kind of the quintessential early rock and roll drummer. At least that's what he's early on known for. Um, he played with just about everybody you can think of from pop in pop music starting in the mid fifties on, mm -hmm. uh, he played on La Bamba. He played on Fats Domino's I'm walking. He played with Chuck Berry. He played on little Richard's good yeah. golly, miss Molly. Tutti Almost Fruity. all of the little Richard stuff. I think. Yeah. He didn't play on one, which I might talk about later, mm -hmm. an important one, but, uh, he played, uh, you send me Sam cook. Mm. Uh, he played, I was, I just finished his, his biography actually. Mm -hmm. And Oh, it man, credits, do a book swap. It's it's it was really great. It's really yeah. heart wrenching. There's a part where his wife dies, and it's like just gut wrenching stuff. But uh, let's see. He played like straight up backbeats, mm -hmm. recorded as early as 1949 on a song by Fats Domino called "The Fat Man," and it's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, recorded example of straight up like two and four backbeats. Right on. Uh, so for you know rock and roll playing, it's, yeah. it's I mean that's that's difficult to even explain to a 
a modern fan of music who might even be relatively well educated is that that's just what not that what you did. Yeah, yeah. You didn't hit the snare that hard on two and four. If you were playing drums in the late 1940s, you were a jazz drummer. And that sort of playing was was like maybe only appropriate for like the hottest, loudest part of like a, a tune. A, yeah, usually, and only what a few tunes on a set or something. Yeah. But yeah, what preceded that, they weren't hitting the snare drum. The time I think the two and four was on the hi hat, and there was some snare stuff going on. Yep. But that's one of the main ingredients I think for rock and roll is the backbeat. Right. Uh, that might be the main ingredient. Sure. I mean, you know, well, there are some the other things. Straighter, and, straighter yeah. eighth notes, the guitar. Uh, Lyrical but you could have all those things, stuff. and it wouldn't feel like rock and roll without the backbeat. That's true. You could you could lose some of those things and just have a a, a basic beat with a backbeat, and just have that happening. And somebody would listen to that and be like, Say it's rock "That sounds roll. like yeah. rock and roll." Right. So, but the song I picked, I could have you know, you've heard all these songs, Tutti Fruity and all this. So the song I picked, actually, reading his book, I didn't know that he played on a lot of jazz records and. uh he played on a great record, uh, Swingin' Brass, 1954, with Frank Sinatra. Mm. Listen, and I listened to it, and he's as convincing a big band drummer as, as anybody you'd want. And it swings. It's incredible. He's no Mel Lewis, per se, you know, Mel Lewis being one of the quintessential big band drummers. Right. But uh, it was, you know, it wasn't about the drumming. It was about Frank's voice or whatever. Uh, but I listen, actually listened to that record too much, <laughs> so I picked something else. <laughs> and this is kind of obscure, but I like the drumming on this. It's Gil Fuller and the Monterey Jazz Festival Orchestra featuring Dizzy Gillespie. Nice. And the song is called that guy. Things Are Here. Yeah, Dizzy. <laughs> <laughs> now, the knock on this record was that, you know, here's here's a, a main major artist going to this orchestra festival sorry to this festival and and this arranger gil fuller didn't feature him enough on this record so the complaint you know if you read the review is that it's too much of the big band and not enough dizzy Hmm. but uh i don't really care about that i just thought it was a good record yeah Uh, so this tune starts with some like you know lush chords and then uh earl palmer kicks in with some some cool kind of latin infused drumming and then it goes into straight up big band so if we could hear that just do the top Yeah, his his drumming and you know as you like research all the different recordings he played on, it wasn't just fifties, sixties. It was all the way up. Uh, when did he pass? He, um, in sometime in the last ten years, I think. I should. We, we can just have Kevin voice that over later. Yeah, nineteen eighty nine. He died. No, it was in the two thousand. It was in the 2000s. It might have been oh, okay. 2006 or something. Well, we've established, but, uh, you and I, Adam, this is not the research base. No, no. <laughs> we we, we barely not, know what we're talking about. We play about fast and loose with time, facts. Yeah. So. <laughs> but if you go back and check out that Frank Sinatra record, though, Swingin' yeah. Brass, uh, 
it's like Sinatra with Swing and Brass or something like that, 1954 or 56. Yeah. Supposedly he just sight read the record down on this, on this session. And it's like, you know, the the thing with, with big band playing is you have to like be so confident and take such control Mm -hmm. of the ensemble because Mm -hmm. it's 30 guys or something. And, and, uh, he has all that. And so, you know, I thought it was incredible. It's like herding cats. Exactly. (laughs) Great stuff. Cool. What you got, Adam? Um, I'm thinking, I'm wondering which one I should go for. Uh, all right, I'm going to go with uh, Billy Conway. Yeah? Uh, yeah, Billy Conway was uh, one of two drummers from a band called Morphine, but uh, Billy Conway was there for, for most of it. and uh, Got a Morphine poster on the wall right yeah, now. Yeah, I, love, I loved Morphine. Is, is Morphine not just underrated drumming, but just an, uh, an unsung band? Or yeah. Did they get their I think they're, Well, he died. The guy died the guy on stage. Died, but and that would on do stage? it. Yeah, he died on stage in Italy. No, heart attack. Heart attack. I just died of a heart attack in front of like. There like, were some substances in his bloodstream. No, he was in, weren't. dude. He, I'm telling you, just I don't, think look, he had don't been, look skeptically at me, dude. Really? I, know, I know my shit. I, I, I thought I, he had I, been I, in rehab and stuff. Uh-uh. No, no. Kevin, now, now, which is to say, he did enjoy the substances, right? But this particular one, like, there was not. It was yeah, just a, he okay. just. I mean, he had a like. I think it was like congenital kind mm-hmm. of like. Yep. Then he was in Italy, so he's. Probably what was wrong with his congenitals? <laughs> All right, so here's the thing. Uh, the reason why Billy Conway, um, and t- to be fair, the other drummer, uh, Jerome Dupree, um, Jerome Dupree played mostly on uh, uh, Cure for Pain, yeah, um, which was a great album mm-hmm. in and of itself. But I-, I think one of the reasons I got into what they were doing was I was I was uh, I wasn't even in my twenties yet, and uh, you know at the time I was just thinking drumming was just what you dynamics you you hit and you hit hard and <laughs> right, that is right. how you play the drums and i was completely brain dead about it and then after listening to this guy um both of those guys i i kind of started rethinking things i mean because uh billy conway used these little toothpick 7a sticks um it wasn't really a hard hitter but i mean the man's sense of of touch and getting as much as he could out of a drum set without just killing it yeah. um uh, he was and and I stole so much from him. Um, the way he tunes his drums, the way he tunes his drums, and the way he managed to get stuff out of drums without uh, hitting the rim. Sometimes yeah. hitting the rim, sometimes like really working the what, bell. What's on. different about the way he tunes his drums? Um, he would uh, he, he really kind of almost it almost seemed like he was using sort of bebop drums, didn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you, know. when you put it in context, like you're talking about. Uh, the rock pantheon of drumming were just coming out of the 80s and the way drums were tuned mm-hmm. and recorded in the 80s. Even in the early 90s, like listen to the first Pearl Jam record. It sounds yeah. like it was recorded in 1988. Right. But so to hear a band like Morphine in the 90s for me was like revelatory. It was. Because, it absolutely was. Because, yeah, the, and I didn't know that the points of reference, like you were saying, it was like a bebop tuning. That's exactly what it was like. So the drums were tuned higher, but they right. were tuned open. So they would ring longer. Right. Whereas um, the whole, you know, Steve Gadd revolution of like studio drumming of like the 60s and well, the 70s really was the drums were tuned low and, and, and dead. And quite often they didn't have bottom heads like Fleetwood Mac style. So those toms would just right. kind of like. Yeah, well, that's, Jeff, that's Jeff Emmerich's fault. R- well, yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, everybody blames Ringo, but it's Jeff Emmerich. Yeah, but like the so, so but, t- if you think about like toms in the 70s, they would the, like, like think about the thud. toms on a thud on a Fleetwood Mac thing. And that was because yeah. there were no bottom heads on it. So the, and the Eagles, like Don Henley, yeah. Hotel California, they just die. Like you'd hit that tom and it would just go, yep. and that was it. Um, but Billy Conway, was he was a jazz guy, and he brought that kind of sensibility into, into morphine. And, but what I really, I really got out of him was um, his kind of use of the left foot, um, hmm. you know, really using that left foot uh, just 
on the ands, doing patterns on the left foot uh, in the midst of things to kind of create different things. And it was about getting as much as you could out of the drum set by using, uh, I don't know, different parts of the head. Sometimes mm-hmm. he'd hit the tom um, and the snare like high up towards the rim so it would get a different tone out of it. He yeah. was really good at ghosting um, and things that hadn't even occurred to me um, when I was playing, when I was a little, little, little nothing. Yeah. Um, so the song I chose was uh, Wishing Well cool. off of uh, Like Swimming. Cool. And, and it gives you a good idea of how he used rims and his left foot and just, just he sw- swung like a motherfucker. And he was amazing. Okay. Still is amazing. story yeah. about the band not the drug I saw them like four times man I never saw them I, saw them really I had times. tickets to see I their them, last time at, at the, 930 uh, Club I saw them at the Warfield in San Francisco I saw them at the Flood Zone in Richmond that was fucking insane oh wow missed that show yeah <laughs> I saw them at Flood Zone in Richmond I saw them at Warfield in San Francisco and I saw them I think in Pittsburgh and I saw them in Tampa it, it should be said like Morphine is one of my favorite bands yeah. and, and it's because of stuff like this although like it, we talked about Cure for Pain and which is Great album. An undeni- it's yeah. a masterpiece. Yeah. I don't think there's much that's been like it. Uh, but by the time you get to this, uh, this is um, on DreamWorks Records. Yeah, this which, is after they left Ryko and all these, and Spielberg guys, started. Honestly, but do you guys remember in the early 90s how hip Ryko Disc seemed? Mm-hmm. Like all the cool yeah. bands were on Ryko Disc, but, don't you Now know? it's just reissues. Yeah, reissues. yeah, but they were reissuing Zappa, but also like Sugar. And I'm, we'll get to Sugar, because I have a guy from Sugar mm-hmm. on there. But like Sugar was on Ryko Disc, and, and Morphine was on Ryko Disc. And like I was like, I want to be on Ryko Disc somehow, you know? But his so his plane, though, like Morphine got first further out there and into the jazz as they went along. Right. And then would turn out these weird like pop songs on this album in particular, mm-hmm. which the, was, that was one thing I really enjoyed about them because it was really easy for them to just become a one trick pony. But right. somehow what they were doing musically was interesting enough to the point where they didn't just be like, Oh, it's that shit again. Well, because yeah. it was really good songs yeah. filtered through a very mm-hmm. unique instrumentation. Yeah. That's just not a, not a guitar to be seen. You know, yeah. it's just it was two string slide bass, drums, saxophone. Well, Amazing. Let me ask you guys this. Uh, how do you play with someone like Sandman? Oh, I wish I, I, wish I, I, wish I had the chance. <laughs> like, how, but I, how, I mean, how do you because out, that's like as somebody I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a bassist, but I play bass guitar, you know, and yeah. stuff. And it's it's a different way of even playing guitar. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think if if you get a gig with a guy like that, you just like any other gig, you just listen to it and. And you go to rehearsal and you bring a bunch of different symbols, but you probably have an idea going in that you're going to need to use 
a different right. approach than you would for a standard rock band. Yeah. Right. My, my, uh, my morphine story is that, uh, me and my high school buddies, even after I graduated high school and I would come home for the weekend, had just a, a tradition of making the pilgrimage from Sterling Park to, um, the Tower Records in Tyson's or sometimes the Tower Records in Fairfax. And we would just go to, to buy the newest records we, we thought we wanted based on what we read about or what we heard from friends. And one of the trips we made to Tower Records, my buddy Brian was driving and he's like, man, I heard this, uh, my girlfriend played me this record by this band Morphine. I've got to go get their new record. And I was like, yeah, cool. Right on. And uh, I, I don't know what I picked up, but he put it in and, and the, I think. Buena. Honey White is the first Honey track. White. Yeah, okay. And, and it just, the first, like from the f- first volley of saxophone notes, I was just like completely mesmerized. Yep. And then kind of like, I don't know how to quite explain this. Like like uh, certain chemicals are like fixatives for like graphic art. So his car threw a rod on the way home. So like right after we finished listening to Honey White was just like, oh man, I wish I had bought this this record too. Like his car died. So they were like stranded on the side of the road, (laughs) Route Seven. So like for me, forever, like like stuck with that memory of hearing that song for the first time was like what it was like standing on Route Seven like in the summer, like by the side of the road, waiting for like Brian's mom to come pick us up. Yeah, (laughs) we had broke down. I remember. No, but I remember. I remember (laughs) Morphine. But Morphine was one of those bands where like you absolutely remember where you were Mm -hmm. when you heard them the first time like the first time i heard them i was driving around like richmond i was like delivering pizzas in richmond virginia and and i heard it on the radio yeah that's the thing like then i was like well word up to the richmond radio station for playing that because i was like driving around delivering pizzas and um you know i the first song i heard was buena you know buena yeah and uh i almost drove into one of those shitty confederate trophies on monument avenue (laughs) yeah like listening to that i was like holy shit if if you had they'd have been like and our job is done (laughs) i mean mean, and and i think the thing about it is because the instrumentation was so different from anything that was going on yeah but that's that's somewhat now but you had to pay attention to each part and you don't know at least me personally i don't know at any time what part to actually pay attention to. Yeah. Sometimes I'll lock in on the drum mm-hmm. and I'm just holy shit. And it's then all, the saxophone comes in and you're like, what the, f-, you know, there's it's, a ton it's going whole. I mean, it's a it is. Whole approach was, he called yeah. it low music and yeah. he was really trying to work within limited constraints. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a good lesson for any of us that are trying to write songs. Is that if you have like a huge band, you have this entire giant color palette available to you. Like sometimes it's, it doesn't generate the same kind of creativity as when you have like yeah. limitations on a bass guitar yeah. or yeah. just a four piece yeah. drum. You have to work like within, all those, you have to work ages, within yeah. those walls that are set up and sometimes right. you can do really amazing things. Yeah. But it's like almost, Joshua Redmond said he liked morphine. I was like, yeah, Fuck yeah you do. Yeah. Oh, but that's that's cool. Cool. As, a, as a creative, I guess the point I was trying to make is like this type of stuff, like, like, fries my brain yeah like in the best way it's just like every every well, time was, i hear that conf- even just hearing that and i don't yeah. even, i don't even like that song yeah i'm like it's not it's yeah. like but it was completely but the sound out. is compelling right the, po- yeah. the point is is it was completely out of the out of the um it was out of the format that mm-hmm. we were all used to it's like they're supposed to be guitars or they're supposed to be like i don't know a, a a, a, like a rapper or something, you know, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's supposed to be guitars. There's supposed to be a huge drum set. There's supposed to be this going on. And, and, and they didn't have any of that. They, Especially in that time period. Too. Yeah. 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 Well, we're, well, we're talking about a time period though, that when morphine was not the only weird band that was on the radio, Soul Coffee. We, we've already talked That's about the kind Soul of stuff yeah. I was trying to go for. And I was Primus. trying to go for stuff that like and Primus weird. And, Primus, yeah. And the next band I want to talk about. Okay, go. Uh, which, nice is, which is Fishbone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, of course. And, 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 you know, before we even get into what Fishbone was and is like, just talking about like, you know, the, the record industry was a lot different back then. It's always been a risky industry for anybody in it, but it was, it, it, 
it was a lot less risky than it is now that the bottom has fallen out and nobody's paying for recorded music right. anymore. Where record right. labels are not willing to take a risk on anything. Right. Weird music still had a chance of making it back when there were bands like Morphine mm-hmm. and Soul Coughing and Primus. And thank God for it, because I don't think my the, my palate as a musician would be nearly as sophisticated if I hadn't have heard bands like Primus that didn't take themselves too seriously yeah. or bands like Morphine that were just definitely going for a very different sound. Um, so in the summer of my, like before my sophomore year, I decided to, to go to summer school for a summer just to catch up with my friends that were going to be in algebra one next year. And so I, uh, I took geometry over the summer and, and, uh, earlier that summer, my dad, as was his practice had bought, uh, a few CDs that were recommended by the Washington post, which became progressively more and more hilarious as right. not that my dad was like an old stick in the mud. He listened, he liked listening to new music. I mean, most people over the age of 25 don't really listen to anything new. They just right. listen to stuff that they, right. they were listening to when they went to college. But my dad bought Fishbone, The Reality of My Surroundings. My dad <laughs> bought The Reality of My Surroundings yeah. because The Washington Post said it was a good album. And, and he didn't like it because he, he heard it and he thought, I don't know where any of this is coming from. I heard it and I thought, I don't know where most of this is coming from, but I, I must get more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, at the time, I didn't understand a lot of it was coming from like church like gospel music a lot of it was coming from jazz there was obviously a really heavy ska influence considering fishbone practically invented that you know yeah that wave of ska music and and hardcore and and metal like all those things kind of influences yeah Yeah. coming together all at once it blew my mind um from the first notes which is which is the first track that uh, yeah uh, on the on the record that i wanted to to play so it's a it's so many millions yeah um all right we're gonna show them where it's at So, so this, this tape lived in my Walkman for that entire summer, and I had to walk a lot farther to the bus stop for summer school than I did for regular school. Yeah. So I got to, I listened to this record one and a half or two times every, on the bus because mm-hmm. I didn't want to talk to anybody. Um, on the bus on the way home from school, it just it again it's another one that's sort of like part of my DNA, and it, like Mike was saying while we were listening, it's um it's a, it's like a, almost like a history lesson. Um, this album of not just great black music that's been made in this country, but great punk rock and, you know, it's like a gateway drug. You can, you know, he, he plays Barry Sachs. So from here you can get into Jerry Mulligan or morphine yeah, or you can get into, you know, with like, I was saying, Chim Chim. Honestly, not hearing hearing that for shit, probably 10 years now. Like, like now I hear like go, go in it. And that's just because I've been in DC. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's it's fair. Got they were from it's LA. got everything in it. Yeah, I know they were from LA, but. But the, I mean, they came after like Bad Brains and like obviously Chuck Brown and stuff. And DC had they came almost at the same time as Bad. Did they? They were a little later. They were a little bit later. They were definitely inspired by the energy. What's their first record? What year? Uh, I don't know. Eighty six, I think it was a little bit later. Facts do not matter. So I think they were in high school. They started in high school though, and I would say having seen that documentary movie, I can't remember the name of it. I think 84, 85 is what you're thinking, but Bad Brains were a few years earlier. And mm-hmm. su- supposedly, though, I don't think they were influenced by that East Coast, like DC punk. I think they were more, they, they in that documentary, they were like, we were doing shows with punk bands, yeah. with skins, like sure. Black Flag, and we come out with this like hyped out ska band, mm-hmm. and people didn't know what to make of it, but Angelo is flipping around off the stage, yeah. and people actually dug it. I saw I saw them for their, for the first time. Uh, at Lollapalooza, and it it was just. I mean, oh, you got I, to see him on that. That was the Give Him Monkey, yeah. yeah, era. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's you know where Prime where Primus was and and Morphine, those bands were weird and had a very and Soul Coughing had like a sound where you're like, oh, that's that's definitely that band. Mm-hmm. Fishbone was so eclectic, like no other band I think that had any kind of major label deal before or since. I think Chameleonic. No, no band has been that eclectic, down. but still always sounded like them. You could tell, yeah. even if it, if it was Angelo singing or Kendall singing or, or Walter singing, like you could always tell, I don't know, maybe it's just cause I'm a fan that it was Fishbone. And, uh, I think, I think music needs weird. And I think if you go back to any musical tradition, uh, jazz needed Thelonious Monk. It's like a little bit of Tabasco because the guy was kind of, and this kind of ties in with our whole conversation about mental health yeah. and, uh, and creativity. Was absolutely. Yeah. He was a whack job and he would never would have made such incredible, unique individual music, I think, if he wasn't a little bit off his rocker. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's issues in mental health with Fishbone. Like Kendall was joined a cult for a while. Sure, and mm-hmm. Angelo's got problems. And, yeah. and substance abuse just exacerbates those problems. But I, to have I, a conversation I hear what you're saying talk. about mental health, but I think for every example of someone that's got problems, you have examples of people who are straight and were still killing Yeah, it, I'm not you know? saying you have to be crazy in order to make good music. I'm just saying we need weird in music, and we're not well, getting it Well, the thing right with now. that, too, is and not, I'm not trying, attacking what you're saying. I'm just exploring it, is that like weird with the total homogenization of music with the the pop synthesis of Taylor Swift which is give people what they we know they already like yeah. and they'll mm-hmm. they'll eat it you know weird isn't actually that weird it's just we're actually we have the balls to do something that's not in the same channel as what everyone expects. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, sure, Primus is kind of weird, but Fishbone, I don't think they were that weird, per se, because... They, it's, at, you know if they had just at made a whole record that sounded like so many millions, they would not be that weird. If they made yeah. a whole record that yeah. sounded like those weird punk like rave ups. If yeah. I were a dot dot dot, yeah. all the breaks in between, then that wouldn't be that weird. But the fact that they the put mix is weird. metal and soul and funk fusion right. and gospel, uh, they weren't afraid of putting all manner and, of different and things and on the pizza. It's contextual and, and it's the and this time is like when it came out. Yeah, like yeah, we it's have weird decades of hindsight on this now. It's so homogenous these days. Like, yeah. what's what's weird right now? Yeah, there's lots of weird. I'm weird. just saying, I mean, Columbia, what's, what's weird and popular? Yeah, Columbia's not going to take a chance on a prime. If Primus came out now, they wouldn't have a record deal. If if Soul Coughing or Morphine came out now, they wouldn't have a record deal. Period. Or they just produce their music independently. They would produce oh, their yeah, music independently. Or they'd be a Kickstarter. Some asshole producer would be like, you know what we need? We need to get, we need to get like, uh, we need to get Kanye in here to produce this. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, yeah, that's, that's what would happen. Crimes. I was thinking, you know, Trauma Paul crimes. McCartney makes his first misstep of his career. With Kanye? He did a, he did a, no, you know what I read about that? What was amazing was there were all these tweets that were like, man, I don't know who this Paul McCarthy oh, is, but Jesus. Kanye is going to blow his ass up. They had no fucking idea who well, it was. Man. Yeah, I just, whatever. I'm not on the Kanye Cultural. thing. 
Man, no, who cares? You know, yeah. look, that's that's not for us. That's for children, and that's fine. <laughs> um, anyway, as Philip Fisher was was we might as a well big part of the sound. Cartoon characters or action figures, you know, for Pistol Kanye. Yeah. Philip Fisher, w- w- yeah. I mean, his his nickname was Fish. I mean, he was. He we was need fish. Fish, he, fish he, where he are left, you? He left, fish, we he left want the band. You. Yeah, he left Come the band. In, he left the band in 1998 and yeah. played with Justin Timberlake for a while and became a studio drummer. I don't. I, Mike said that. It's kind of hard to figure out I've, what he's doing uh, now. But. I, before I read, because we emailed saying, you know, here's my dibs on these guys. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to do fish, and well, I looked around. You, you looked around, yeah. And there's some Justin Timberlake noise six years ago, mm-hmm. and just nothing. Well, I mean, you know, none of us have the experience of attaining the kind of level. Like, none of us played Lollapalooza. Um, mm-hmm. You know, playing regularly in front of audiences of that size and then still not seeing the monetary, at least the financial stability of being able to, like, support yourself or maybe even a family, like... Some of these guys might have gone into real estate, and uh, I guys, can't say I blame them. Have if, you guys ever wondered, like, when you when listening to like some of those commercial jingles, and you hear a drummer who's like, like, "Man, I wonder who that motherfucker is." Like, it's it, probably Greg Bichonette. <laughs> Whatever you want, think Belmont. I was like, yeah, that guy's pretty tight. <laughs> you know? Or like Jerry Ford. Is this, after, is this after four lozenges? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 a hard racket. But that's the thing. I think well, the one thing we're doing is we're choosing drummers who um, were interesting to us. These are just drummers that made me want to play drums. Exactly. Yeah. That's all. You got like or, or more to be more specific, guys I wanted to steal from. Sure. You know, that's the sign of like someone who's doing something interesting is someone who's like, ooh, I want to learn how to do that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like when you hear somebody who's doing something that you've never heard before or it's never occurred to you and you're like, okay, how can I uh, appropriate that mm-hmm. for my own purposes? You know, I mean, that's the sign of, of, of someone who you want, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and I as, heard that, as that, drummers, we're going to, you're going to get into people who, um, aren't as obvious as, as, as just uh, sort of like other musicians or just music fans would pay attention to, you know? So, um, fuck is it my turn? No, Mike's, no. Mike's so, were you going to say Ben? You asked me. I thought I'd heard that that uh, Philip Fisher was also playing for Britney Spears at one point. <laughs> you know, I'm sure he me. probably bounced and was like, "I need to be a career drummer." Then again, yeah. man, don't those guys deserve a paycheck? I would play. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, like one of my I'd dress favorite up drummers, like the fucking Pillsbury Doughboy, if there's enough <laughs> fucking money in it for me, you know. <laughs> I would like to see that. Yeah. One of How my favorite drummers yeah. right yeah. now is this we'll guy. Put together a Kickstarter. Not much. Yeah. yeah not this much. guy, Dave Elitz. Do you guys have you heard of him? Mm-hmm. He played. Uh, he was a, a later Mars Volta guy, oh, okay. and he plays with some various different people. But he took the gig with Miley Cyrus right as this Wrecking Ball stuff was happening, and people like there was like Twitter backlash. But he was like, "It's a gig. It's exactly what I'm not known for. Yeah. I want to take that gig and you know pay my rent on my rehearsal studio." Like. Yeah. In a heartbeat. I'm not going to piss know? on anybody who, you know, gets He's trying to, to make eat. trying to make a living. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to piss on anybody who gets to eat. I don't care who they play for. You know, seriously. Yep. Dig it. Okay. Turn, what are we bro. doing? One more or two more? One more. All right. Do you guys want to hear a songwriter drummer or a '90s rock drummer? Or am I calling audible? He's going to say it? '90s rock, and I'm going to say songwriter. So yeah, but I, I Kevin's yeah. the sidebreaker. Kevin. <laughs> Good songwriter drummer. All right, you you got to pull this up though from my That's file fine. I sent you. That's so fine. we got it. Uh, as a kid, I think we all, you know, you're talking about dad's record collection or whatever. My dad have, had a bunch of records like uh, Steely Dan and um, you know the the typical stuff of the day. Stevie Wonder, also kind of an unsung drummer. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. But uh, I noticed the one name kept coming up over and over on all my dad's records: James Taylor. Uh, 
Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, and it's this one guy, Russ Kunkel. And yeah. I'm hey, like, Russ, yeah, who, man. Who is this guy, Russ? I'd look at the jet, you know, because back in the day, right. This is this is pre-internet kids. <laughs> you know, you sit there and stare at the LP jacket, and yeah, you're like, like, "Who is that guy? Who is this guy? Right? Who go, is this you guy?" You had to work at it if you wanted to know who these people were. Exactly, you know? yeah. and there was no way to look it up. This is when we actually had encyclopedias in the house. If you wanted to know about, you know, there's there's no Wikipedia page. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, he, I think he's important because he played on, uh, like Joni Mitchell's Blue album, all that James Taylor stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the one I picked was from uh, Dylan, Pat Garrett, and Billy the Kid soundtrack, Knocking on Heaven's Door. Mm-hmm. All right. It should be in that box. It is, there. it is. Uh, Russ Kunkel. played on a ton if you look at his discography it's you know i think carol king tapestry he played on that yeah and there's some great youtube stuff of james taylor live where at least what i saw it was pretty incredible the the trust they have in their playing with each other but yet you see like no stage monitors anywhere and it's like carol king's on a piano like 20 yards to the left and james taylor's you know way out no way you can hear there's no way you can hear yet they sound perfectly you know gelled and and uh, and he didn't, you know, you don't think of that as a drumming song, but I think it's important because of the song, you know. Yeah. And the, the amount of those types of songs he played on. But seeing him live on YouTube and stuff, he had some, he had a little bit of fire in there. He was, he was stepping it up live. Well, and even in know? that one, there's a little bit of a looseness. There's a little bit of rattle. Yeah. On, on the snare and he's yeah. doing stuff like that. And it, and it, some it, personality. It holds stuff like that. A lot like uh, LeVon Helm, who's not an unsung like drummer, but... No. Uh, you know, very solid, very Groovy, simple, dude. song supportive. Yeah, and he's Levon was a great singer too. Yeah, yeah, totally. Adam, all right. Um, we don't have to play this. This is just something I want to. Since we're getting around to the last one, I just want to mention this, sure. and then I'll go into the one that I want to have played. Um, uh, Jay Mascus. Um, we all talk. Like whenever, whenever anyone talks about Dinosaur Jr., they're talking about you're living all over me and Bug and Murph. Murph is the drummer for yeah. Dinosaur Jr. But Green Mind, mm-hmm. Murph only played on three tracks and the rest of it was Jay Mascus actually playing the drums. Mm. And uh, so if you have a chance to go listen to the title track of Green Mind, fucking amazing. Okay. Absolutely huh. fucking amazing. And that's Jay Mascus. Um, we could do a whole, a whole thing about 
singers who play drums. Mike was mentioning Stevie Wonder. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. listen to any. Or, or but to be fair, Paul McCartney. Listen yeah. to Why yeah. Don't We Do It in the Road. That's or, Paul McCartney. Or back in the USSR, for that matter. But, um, or, but, or whose idea was come together, the drum part? Do you think Ringo really thought of that? Ah, uh, give him a little credit. Or do you think, well, no, because <laughs> Paul, Paul talks about being in the room and he would conduct Ringo and then yeah. overdub his bass later. That's why the bass parts are so great because of the retrofitting. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but anyway, I wanted to ask about Jay Maskus has a side band called like Witch or something. Yeah, he's 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 really he's and he's a great. drummer in that. He's yeah. still great, and he's a great drummer. And, and but uh, he killed it on Green Mind, the title track of Green Mind. Play like a few seconds on okay. mm-hmm. he, put it on he just fucking crushed it. So the last, the last guy I want to bring up, and we were talking about this earlier, the idea that um, uh, a mediocre drummer is going to make a mediocre band, and if you get a great drummer, that changes everything. Mm-hmm. So having said that, I was a fan of Husker Du. I was not a fan of Grant Hart. Gotcha. Um, hated Grant Hart. I thought Grant Hart was a shitty drummer. And when he sang, I thought he sounded like he was a fucking game show host. He sounded like he was like... Uh, uh, he sounded like he was fucking, uh, you know, singing for the Jay Giles band. Yeah. Like if you listen to the stuff on New Day Rising, <laughs> hey, Angel in the Centerfold is a classic. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But if you listen to like, if you listen to like some of the stuff on New Day Rising and like Grant Hart songs, he's like, oh, no, hey, oh. and it's supposed to be punk rock, you know. And it's like I love fucking Bob Mould. So Husker Du breaks up. Bob Mould puts out two um, solo albums, both really good. Although mm-hmm. Black Sheets of Rain was depressing as a motherfucker. Right. The workbook was amazing. But then he gets a band together, and the drummer that he gets is this guy named Malcolm Travis, and Malcolm Travis does one thing, and he does it really well. Uh, he owns that kind of like um, 16th note on the snare drum, yeah. just like, and that's his only thing. That thing which I cannot do. But the thing was, he made he made fucking, he made Bob, and Bob Mould was amazing in Husker Du, but yeah. uh, Copper Blue comes out with Malcolm Travis on the drums, just being as solid as fucking Sears, just being like, this is this one thing I need you to do. I need you to be solid. I need you to give me those 16th notes on the snare drums. Mm-hmm. And Copper Blue takes off, and everyone's like, everyone finally, the universe finally realizes what an amazing drummer, what amazing songwriter Bob Mould is. Right. And so the song I'm doing is a good idea, and yes, when you hear it, you'll think it is a good idea to rip off the Pixies. But <laughs> having said that, um, Bob Mould rips people off. I mean, sure. he ripped off bloody, My Bloody Valentine, and that's fine. But... Uh, the best thing he could have possibly gotten was got was to get Malcolm Travis, who was just a drummer, who was just a click track, sixteenth yeah, yeah. note on the snare drum uh, drummer, and so uh, that's that's my guy. All right, so let's do it.
Let me ask you something though. Is uh, that is that is he one of the people that sort of set that? Because that's a very solid, very standard like '90s drumming thing that defines no, a lot standard of your song. Drummer, drumming of all time. Is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, like everybody loves any any songwriter is going to love a drummer who can just like stay the fuck out of the way and do what he's okay. supposed to do. Yeah. Honestly, that's like the utilitarian aspect of it. Yeah. In a lot, I mean, there are a lot of times like some sometimes the drummers who get the most work are the guys who are like plumbers. Or carpenters, you know, it's just a gig, and they, you know, and then there's no ego attached to it. Exactly. They're not trying to they're, prove they're, something. They're, they're like yeah. they're not. They're not wearing berets, man. They're not artists. <laughs> you know, we are they're definitely anti beret. Yeah, they're like the roto rooter guys. They're like, yeah, I mean, honestly, guess. Ben, do you remember? Like, uh, uh, like I called a buddy of mine, uh, a guy I used to play with, like was doing a like a wedding, and I was yeah. like, well, I, I can't do it. I better call Ben because it's it's like a job sometimes. Yeah, you know, and this guy Malcolm Travis, it was like. A job. I'm going to do this job. I'm going to do this thing. It's like laying, laying brick. Nice. You know? Um, well, I think it's really interesting what you said when we were listening to it. It's like, and, and suddenly we all realized that the, the Bob genius Mould of is amazing. Bob writing is like, you know, it's not to be discounted that a lot of times presentation is a big part of it. And if your drummer is yeah. playing all over what you're trying to get across, yeah. it can and, get in the way and, for sure. And let's let Grant Hart was not a great drummer. Right, Grant right. Hart was not a great drummer, and and like all of a sudden, uh, Bob Mould got a guy who who knew how to stay the fuck out of the way and just and just. Now, the and fair, then all of a sudden, the, the music of Sugar was very different from Husker Du. I don't, I don't know. It's uh, it was still Bob Mould's guitar Bob sound, Mould, but it that was, was that Bob Mould guitar sound. It was that Bob Mould guitar sound. It might have been in like a little little neater package for everybody. So maybe what, maybe different. what he's saying is the reason it was different is because of well, and, and that's what I, that's what I was going to say. Is that, is that it, it is it took that cleaning up that mm-hmm. being making it like you're not all over the place for people to be like oh right this is what that guy's saying yeah what year is this track that we just heard I think it was like 1992 okay yeah. yeah. Because there, there's the, you know, the trail of influences back from Nirvana was some of that Oscar Du, Minneapolis, Twin, Twin Cities Absolutely. stuff, yeah. right? So, you know, I can hear in the guitar sound especially, you but know. That's Bob Mould, yeah. Bob sure. Mould was like, he was like him and the replacements were <clears throat> yep. the Minneapolis yeah, guys. Yeah. Oddly enough, happening at the same time as Prince, which was the exact... Opposite. Different genre. Like, I can't imagine those guys hung out in the same bars and stuff. You know, probably but, different bars. Yeah, <laughs> Prince one is purple, weird. One purple, one not. Yeah, exactly. But uh, awesome. Yeah, I just I, I really appreciated that guy. I appreciated him number one because like all of a sudden everyone was realizing how amazing Bob Mould right. was because um, they didn't have to deal with Grant Hart's nonsense. Um, and I, I know. So can sense. I just I just want to clarify? You're not a fan of not Grant. A, not a fan of Grant. It's not Hart. a fan. He's a fucking okay. game show. Host. This wasn't it's terrible. <laughs> In the future, islands come. <laughs> <laughs> but it sucked because I really loved Husker Du. I just loved, yeah. I loved the Bob Who's, Mould Husker Du. Bob Mould did a record recently, and he got somebody from... Drummer from Super Chunk. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that I, I saw I yeah. saw him actually do... Uh, I saw them do... Uh, I like him, too, I yeah, think. Yeah, I saw him do Copper Blue at the 930 Club, the entire Copper what, Blue. Do you know what his name is? Club. Oh, fuck. I knew it like oh, last John year. Morster from from Super yeah. Chunk. Yeah, yeah, it's John Morster. He does yeah. writing for TV too or something. He's he, a yeah, he does right. podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That guy's a like, and, I and wish he I plays in, in everybody. Yeah, I'd like to hang like, out with him. I'm yeah. doing like a, I'm doing like a Mexican wrestling version of that guy's life. I wish, <laughs> you know, like, I wish I wish like I was like writing a well, like He's writing for comedy and like playing for Bob Mould and shit. No, I'm not doing any of that. You know, nope. I'm like the dollar store version of that guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben. Ooh. 
Last one well, that you got. Um, you know, you mentioned that we hadn't really talked much about metal drummers. Right. Um, so I want to do a tiny little honorable mention. Okay. Which really deserves a lot more attention because he's not the guy I really want to focus on last. But Dale Crover. Okay. Okay. For the Melvins. Yeah. Um, now, he's not a metal drummer, but he has subbed for Dave Lombardo and for Neurosis. Um, but the record, for my money, for the Melvins, and I, while, well, after you said, like, mm-hmm. like, we haven't done any metal drummers, I was like, oh, crap, we haven't. So I sent you an email with a link to The Maggot, which is my favorite Melvins record, half for the guitar sounds as much as for the drumming, but I think um, the opening of that record, you know, you can hear where Nirvana got some of their early influence from the Melvins, but for me, what Dale Crover's drumming was on this record was kind of like a reminder of how articulate drumming should be and how intentional drumming should be, uh, even in the middle of just this glorious guitar soup that is this record. So, um, so I want to Amazon part one. Yeah. Yeah. Do a few seconds this year. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And if you listen further into that track yeah. or in, in the album in, in, in general, like it's it's uh, it's the drummer who was a frustrated guitarist sort of angle of like if you listen to some of the live uh, Zeppelin stuff from how the West was one and you hear the like him and Bonham and Jimmy Page trading mm-hmm. off riffs where Bonham's literally just throwing back what Page has played at him. Same right. contour, same rhythm. Like I think the, the brilliance of Dale, Dale Crover's playing is like he was able to perfectly articulate on the drums exactly the stuff that buzz was writing yeah and it just fits together so well so anyway that's my honorable mention i guess if i have to take one but um the guy i wanted to talk about for my fourth was ainsley dunbar oh shit um and if there was ever was an unsung drummer even though this guy's discography is massive and 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 not in an ironic use of the word at all the guy he played on diamond dogs literally massive by by david bowie he's Mm -hmm. on the first four journey albums uh, he's on the White Snake album, White Snake. <laughs> wow. Um, he's he's played for everybody. He's a bricklayer. But yeah. this is the guy. He's okay. A bricklayer. So who was the guy who was who lost the chair in Jimi Hendrix's band by a coin toss to Mitch Mitchell? Ainsley Dunbar. Wow. Who was the guy who was at the top of Jimmy Page's lists for drummers for Led Zeppelin until his new singer said, you got to come hear this kid that I've been playing with uh, in, in North London. Mm-hmm. Ainsley Dunbar. This guy was, if you want to talk about an unsung drummer, maybe the correct term would be, he's had an incredible career. But a pretty bad run of luck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's like old Gil from The Simpsons, the sales guy, you know. You could say it was bad luck. I mean, he's played with, he's played with all these folks. Like, you know, he got to audition. He got to audition. Fucking Whitesnake. Right. Right. Of course. Of course. Um, He missed the Smashing Pumpkins audition. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He was about like 40 years too old. (laughs) No, um, just kids in that band. Right. He got to audition for who were you going to say? Well, he got to audition with Jimi Hendrix, you know, and he was good enough that Hendrix was like, shit, I don't know who to pick. I'm going to flip a coin. So, um, yeah, of course, I, I think he would have preferred to, to be Did on those. Did he play on some shows. Bowie stuff, too? He played on Diamond Dogs. Yeah. Uh, he, he's, he's played with so many folks. Um, but most interestingly, the track I picked um, primarily for the drum solo, which is not something I'm really big on generally. 
but also just for the sound of the ensemble, is Rubber Duck, which is credited to John Mayall in the Blues Breakers, which is pretty funny because John Mayall's not on the recording. Um, this is the third near miss that Ainsley Dunbar had. He very easily could have been the drummer for Fleetwood Mac, except for then the, the band would have had a different name. But uh, he was he was very active with John Mayall around the time when Peter Green was thinking about leaving John Mayall to start his own band, which of course was the original incarnation of the Fleetwood Mac. Um, and so uh, for his birthday. Peter Green was given some studio time that John Mayall had initially reserved. And Peter Green went and recorded a few songs with his band, which included Ainsley Dunbar on drums. And um, this, when you listen to this track, you have to keep in mind that this was before, um, this was only two months after Cream released their first album. This was um, several months before the first Jimi Hendrix album came out. And this was a year before Steppenwolf kind of happened and that whole sort of like fuzzed out guitar tone thing mm -hmm. uh became became a lot more popular um so this track's called rubber duck and it sounds like fairly pedestrian if we compare it to all those recordings but when you consider that uh it was recorded in the midst of all that and then when you hear the drum solo and i think sort of the undeniable comparisons you might hear between this and the moby dick drum solo that john bonham would start making famous two two and a half years later it's pretty striking cool um all right
uh, Ainsley Dunbar, for my money, like we can't, po- we could do a whole podcast about his drumming. I mean, sure. If he if he had just been the drummer on the first four Journey albums, or if he had just played on you know Diamond Dogs or like any of the other, I mean, if you go to his website, I mean, he's still around and he's you know, um, <clears throat> like then he would be significant. But that, that he's done all those things and just the that sort of like the near misses of like almost yeah. being, you know, in Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. almost being the drummer almost. for Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Almost so being Mike, the drummer Mike, for you were saying that's sort of the theme of what we've come to at yeah. least a little bit. It's so like, did you wrapping it up? It's like, it's, you either caught it, caught the lift or you didn't, you just missed it. And this like, is why you would be unsung. Yeah. But that's one the of the point. reasons. That's like, that's the thing about the music business. Like the motto of the music, if you could put it like, look up the Latin, how do you translate into Latin? There's no fucking right. way of knowing. Like that's the Latin being good thing. enough isn't yeah, even that, the being good enough doesn't enough. matter, you know. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, Billy Conway. God, Billy Conway should be amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, all those guys. Yuval Gabe should be playing everywhere. I don't know where Yuval got Yuval Gabe is playing. I don't. Uh, I don't know where these guys are. Yeah, it also comes down you to know? life choices too, because there are mm-hmm. like some unbelievable drummers that I've seen who are every bit as every bit as good as the guys that are on some of my favorite records. Brian Jones, who was a drummer for Agent, Agents of Good Roots, is a <laughs> monster. <laughs> yeah, he was. monster drummer who I will. Uh, I, will band, yeah. I will insist. To, They're a wedding the day band I now, though. The day I die. They're, yeah. they're probably making way more money he's, as a wedding well, band. Also, he's, he's got two kids and, and his, his. You know yeah, exactly. I think, I think he's in a life, situation life, where he doesn't need to work that much. Also, to shout out somebody from down that area, Brian Caputo, which I don't know if you know. Yeah. He's a he's a f- well he's from Chantilly originally. Yeah, he's f- he's. I know a some folks who went monster. to school with him. Yeah, he's great. Uh, Nate Brown, who uh, played drums for the band Everything, and and Mike mm-hmm. and I have had the pleasure of getting to see him play on almost every one of Todd Wright's holiday concerts at Jam and Java for the past few years. Actually, Nate's been involved for much longer than that. Yeah. Nate's an amazing. He's a force of nature. That's just no other way to put it. Just yeah. the way he hits the drums and just the way he plays. Um, and he's he's totally fine. You know, the idea that like if an, if a drummer is quote unquote unsung implies that that they must be frustrated because they didn't achieve the um, the fame that they wanted. Now everyone wants to be able to eat and have a roof over their mm-hmm. head, but Brian Jones and Nate Brown do. And and yeah. if if they don't need to play drums every day still. You know, well, to to make the yeah. bill, the bill, you know, to pay yeah. the bills, and that's that's okay. For, for me, for me, doing this podcast was, was simply uh, is is meant to be educational for me to see is like as not like I've, I've taken up the drums a little bit. It's interesting to me. But hey, what uh, year are these uh, Slingerlands over here? I have no idea. Andre got them for like seventy bucks off Craigslist. Well, I have a feeling that the floor time and the snare drummer are different years. Yeah, <laughs> the floor time and the <laughs> but, snare drummer. Uh, those are like but, some but it's stuff that as growing up as a guitar player, I never really like dove into like who are these like unsung drummers who are these people laying down that stuff and, and doing all this stuff on a lot of music that i like love uh and so there's an effort to, like to, to get to know more about that mm-hmm. like i don't know like if, if i was doing it, i'd say somebody like which may not be unsung but like bill berry from rem sure mm-hmm. um because, absolutely you know that immediately jumped out to but, me when i was a kid but he's but 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 rem but had intense success you know absolutely and yeah. but I, I always appreciated bill berry because like you know that guy did some amazing I like hi hat guys. Mm-hmm. I like guys who do clever things on the hi hat. And Bill sure. Barry was always Stuart Copeland. Yeah, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but but like then again, Stuart Copeland. He's the example like, of, of he, he's success. pissing. But money. everybody knows yeah. who Stuart yeah. Copeland is. Yeah, like yeah, he's not unsung. Yeah, but if you're talking about hi hat, yeah, yeah. But and, and like not unsung though. If you want Mr. to like, stay in that in Statland, like uh, who's playing drums on most of Sting's work? Vinny Caliuta. Yeah. Oh, now Vinny and yeah. Manicott. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it goes beyond just unsung drummers and just 
the fact that we're in a culture now where, and we've talked about this every time I've come on yeah. the podcast, but um, not really elaborated on it, that like, you just don't need to know nearly as much about where the music comes from in order to find the music anymore. Mm-hmm. You want to, if you want to listen to something on Pandora or Spotify, it's a couple, you know, clicks. It's just pressing yeah. your thumb to the screen. Sure. And, um, you know, it's no judgment on today's generation of kids that they just, they, in order to get to the music they want to hear, they don't have to know that much about the musicians like we had to right. 20 years ago in order yeah, to, to work at it. You yeah. Find it. Which it doesn't, you know, it's a, yeah. just different experience, but, um, but it is, it, I think it makes it more important for us to talk about just unsung musicians in general, mm-hmm. let alone unsung drummers. Like the point is, is these are guys you should know. These are guys you should know. Yeah. And like they, 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 they matter to me. They absolutely matter to me. And they, 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 I, I wanted to play like them. I wanted to steal stuff from them. And like, if that matters, then I, I kind of think people should know. About that. I mean, to, to that point, Ben, though, I mean, there is a, a thing that like, people consume music differently and some people mm-hmm. don't and some people won't and some people never will do that right. but for the people who do they should like i think listen yeah. like the names you guys are throwing out and be like because there's a point where you're listening to your favorite record and you're like i don't know dick about that guy mm-hmm. and now i want to go find it and now you actually can though yeah we also kind of goofed in that we were four dudes and we didn't talk about any female drummers and there's drummers like <sighs> allison, allison miller yeah from the dc area who's played on some Monty defranco records and some natalie merchant records yeah. who's phenomenal Karen Carpenter. Yeah, Karen yeah. Carpenter was amazing. Amazing singer, but also uh, probably a better drummer than, than any of us. She's yeah. terrifyingly yeah. good. Cindy Jackson. You know? Yeah. Um, uh, Cindy Blackman? Cindy Blackman, yeah. excuse me. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm a little sure. drunk. But. Cindy, excuse me, Cindy Blackman Santana. Santana. <laughs> well, oh. Did she marry Carlos? No shit. He married her. Yeah. yeah. Let's just, that's let's just be clear. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He was, was, let's just be clear who was marrying up in that deal. Yeah, but actually, yeah. To Ben's point, Karen Carpenter could fucking kill it. Yep. Yeah. You know, I mean, she was, a, I, I think she was a better drummer than she was a singer. Like Jay Mascus was a better drummer than he was a guitar player. As far as I'm concerned anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you have a chance to look at like some of the stuff Karen Carpenter was doing, mm-hmm. she was absolutely brilliant. You know, I think though in the jazz world, like <clears throat> someone like Allison Miller and Cindy Blackman, they both lead their own jazz groups. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of notoriety that comes like unsung for me is like, you're not going to get a stick deal with your name endorsed on it or REM success or mm-hmm. like in the jazz world, sometimes when you lead your own band that comes with its own notoriety or like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you're going to be reviewed and downbeat in the drummer issue or something. Yeah. Even if it's not mainstream success, but that's true of probably all jazz musicians anyway. Yeah. I think jazz, I mean, jazz we, all, famous, we all know that they say. Yeah, jazz, yeah, jazz we all know that the jazz, you know, division of most record labels is a tax write off. Yeah. Nobody makes money off of producing jazz albums. Which is a damn shame. But like plenty of people have gone to see Brandy Carlisle and been like, man, who was that chick drummer that played that amazing solo? <clears> and they can't remember her name. That was Allison Miller. Yeah. Yeah. So. He was also well. a fantastically nice person. I've yeah. Met her, and she's really, really cool. Well, fellas, I've prepared our lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And it was right. that. All right. Thank you guys for coming down to the basement. Thanks for uh, having us, man. I know I'll see you again. Absolutely. I'll probably see you again, Ben. I hope you come back. Hey, Mike. anytime. And, yeah, so, uh, D'Angelo tomorrow. <laughs> Anybody wants to Man, I wish I could. Yeah. Uh, all right. Oh, we're not crashing here? <laughs> You're welcome to. This is to. a futon. Yes, okay. it pulls out. Yeah. Uh, all right, talk to you guys later. Thanks. All right. That is it. Uh, there you go. There's officially the longest podcast in Chunky Glasses history, if you put it together. This is uh, almost three hours long. 
but it's a good time. It's a good time for us. Hopefully, it's a good time for you listening to it. Uh, thanks again to Ben and Mike for coming down uh, to the basement and sharing their knowledge, and Ben for coming up with this idea. Uh, maybe you know in the future, if if you like this one. Uh, I know uh, I'm a guitar player, so maybe we can do one of uh, unsung guitarists. So if you're listening to this and you're like, "Yeah, I'd like to, like to maybe maybe sit in on that," uh, shoot me an email, uh, and we can talk. We can talk people like uh, Danny Gatton. He's pretty high praise, um, and uh, yeah. So uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, coming up in the next week or so, uh, we've got some stuff. Modest Mouse, I think, is on the way. Uh, might talk about that, might not. Uh, I know the one that I, I am excited to talk about that we're going to be doing next week, hopefully, is Dan Deacon's Gliss Riffer. Uh, electronic music like that, dance music, is it's very, uh, for me at least, uh, hit or miss. Uh, I think uh, some people get inside it. You know, the LCD Sound System, I was a huge fan of that band. Um, and up until now... Uh, I haven't paid too much attention to Dan's music, but something about this one is, is grabbing me a little bit. So I want to see uh, if some of my some of my cohorts what it's doing for them. So uh, hopefully you're going to be talking about that. If you haven't heard it, listen to it. Get ready because you know we're going to talk about it. We may have an on mic on mic dance party. Uh, hopefully have some interviews here for you coming up. Uh, I know at some point we're going to get Louis Weeks back in the studio uh, to talk about his new album Haha that's coming up. And then, uh, you know, we've got a couple other bands coming through the area that uh, might want to sit down and talk with us. So look forward to that. Uh, like I said at the end of the last podcast, uh, Drumming for the Song is on the 22nd. Uh, it's featuring Ben and Mike, uh, as well as Derek Avery, Matt Berry, and Aaron Mason, uh, celebrating uh, the music of Dave Grohl. So uh, get your ass to that. And then uh, after you're done with that, listen to another podcast of ours, because that should be what you're doing with your life. Uh, I think that's it. So we'll see you next week. Uh, This has been episode number 107 of Chunky Glass, the podcast. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. See you later.